welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. In this episode, I talk with Matt Glazuski about the politics of climate change in Portland. Matt is a climate expert with 15 years of government experience who's worked on disaster resiliency projects at the local, regional, and federal levels. He's worked with the Federal Emergency Management Administration, or FEMA, and the National Weather Service, where he once briefed a U.S. Cabinet Secretary. He also helped draft the first climate action plan for Clackamas County. And most recently, he was a senior policy advisor for Portland City Commissioner Mingus Maps. I wanted to share Matt's perspective because earlier this summer, he left his position out of frustration with the lack of urgency on climate change at the city of Portland. And in his final days as a city hall staffer, he shared his concerns publicly in testimony before a city council meeting. Here's our conversation. I'm here with Matt Glazuski. Welcome into the Bike Portland podcasting studio. Pleasure to be here. So first, I want to get, I want to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, how you ended up working at the city of Portland. How, how did how did Macazusi get to City Hall? Um, I've always been, you know, a career public servant. My background's actually in meteorology, um, and I've devoted most of my latter part of my career up until present mostly on climate related issues. And I've worked uh, at Clackamas County, and uh, I studied my my Master of Public Administration here in Portland. It's my adopted home, a place I care about greatly, and I want to be able to make a difference and. You know, as a public servant, trying to be able to influence the people that can help make the decisions is one of the ways that you can, in theory, uh, be able to to make that difference. And I um, was trying to find what ways would be best for me uh, and my skills and what the opportunities were. And it's funny because I met now Commissioner Maps uh, not too far from the Bike Portland studio here at Arbor Lodge Coffee uh, a little over well, maybe about two and a half years ago, right when he was thinking about running for office. Uh, and you know, we talked about the things that you know I cared about, the things that he cared about, and we realized that we were pretty compatible. And he said, would you be interested in helping me on the campaign? And I said, well, you know, here and there, sure, you know, let me know, let me know what you need. Because my background, of course, is more in, in the environmental side, and um, you know there wasn't anybody else really that knew much about that that was uh, involved with the campaign at that point. So, you know, COVID then struck, um, and it became a very different kind of campaign. Um, but uh, I, I helped then candidate maps with uh, some wording for his campaign website, and um, then I brought in one of my dear friends who is uh, one of his senior advisors right now who worked at the city budget office to talk more about logistics and governing because it became pretty obvious um, after he defeated uh, Sam Adams in the primary that he was going to defeat the incumbent Commissioner Udaley and uh, that we really needed to start thinking about what it would be like. And it was also pretty obvious that my colleague and I, Shannon and I, were the only two people that were really thinking about what happens the day after election day. So so we helped sort of prepare the office to kind of get started the day after election day. And um, the then commissioner-elect uh, offered both of us positions in his office. Um, and so we helped basically get everything all started in, in transition and uh, hit the ground running. And when he got assigned the bureaus by the mayor, uh, it was immediately obvious that I would be the person uh, as the bureau liaison for the Water Bureau and BES because those were my people. I knew them quite well uh, just by working in a partner organization. 
and um, rest is history, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So for folks that don't follow uh, Portland politics, so Mingus Maps was a uh, he was a city of Portland uh, employee. So he worked for I believe what Office of Neighborhood Involvement or Office of Civic Life is what they call it now. Right, Civic Life. Civic Life. Uh, so he was a new city commissioner elected uh, November. So last uh, last election, November twenty twenty. So you came on, getting him onboarded, getting him settled into City Hall. What was your actual title? Sure, I was one of the two senior policy advisors. Right. But you came in as someone with a lot of um, like a lot of background in climate resiliency. I don't know if you mentioned, but you worked at uh, the, the Emergency Management Administration, so FEMA. Uh, and so tell me what it was like coming into council um, in a in a political uh, in a, working on a, in, a, in a political office, someone that can influence and change things, um, but then doing it in an environment where you know we we had COVID uh, and we had this this huge reckoning going on with with racism and and other things. Now was that was that like jarring for you? Was that was that how how did you sort of cope with that in terms of? what you maybe expected that time to be versus what it was actually like being on the ground there in City Hall. Yeah, it's, it's a tough space. And uh, to quote a, a dear friend of mine uh, who is a very well-respected career public administrator in Oregon, uh, it's difficult for Portland to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I realized what he meant by that when I was trying to build my own coalitions with my colleagues and other commission offices in the mayor's office to work on climate issues because the city has a climate emergency declaration. But then it wasn't necessarily matching its actions with the, the declaration. And that was uh, something that I was trying to, to help lead because the idea, at least in my own mind, of course, as a uh, career administrator as well, that when you have someone who wants to step up and lead an initiative, a coalition of the willing, uh, then you are able to you know, affect change. But it's it's quite difficult in the current form of Portland city government to really focus on more than a couple of uh, items at a time. And I knew that going in that there were there were obviously a lot of uh, very charged issues um, around uh, racial justice, around uh, policing, around homelessness and houselessness um, and rent and all of the problems, you know, compounded by COVID. Uh, it wasn't exactly the, the prime time to come in with a clean slate and do whatever you want. But at the same time, uh, I as a, a climate um, worker, uh, somebody who's very passionate about it, knows that that climate touches everything. And every single one of those aspects that uh, Portland has been you know, struggling with um, are all still connected to climate change as well. So I was trying to be able to you know, get that momentum and build, build that relationship with the other offices to be able to, to make inroads on that issue. Yeah, you say how climate is tied to everything, and that can be such a difficult uh, place to be. As someone who often sees the world through sort of bike-colored glasses, I can also make I also sort of make that assumption a lot or argument, and that's how I see things. It's like, boy, if we just made our streets more humane, you know, we'd solve X, Y, and Z. But it's it doesn't always play out that way, right? I mean, it doesn't politically when you're trying to build those relationships and get things done. It's it's sort of like if if you try to be all things to everybody, it's not it's really nothing at all to any one thing, right? And I think that, is that kind of where you thought you, you were starting to see things go as you put these relationships together and, and tried to map out how you were going to be effective? Yeah, and and you, you've got a great point there. Uh, when you look at the city's climate action plan, it's quite broad, 
and it to the untrained eye it it really actually looks like it, it does a lot of things but in many cases it's a, a mile wide and an inch deep it's not quite targeted when there are specific initiatives surrounding uh, small aspects within the climate plan that's sometimes where they make uh, progress and that's through no fault of bps I think that uh, the the staff at BPS that work on the climate plan are terrific. And this is the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability. Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, and because of the, the current form of, of government, uh, you don't really have influence over those things un, un, unless you're the commissioner in charge. So to try and build relationships with uh, staff and other commission offices where they were overseeing the, you know, the power, pulling the strings in their specific bureaus uh, was sometimes challenging because obviously those staff didn't necessarily share my passion for the issue. So then it became quite challenging to be able to try and partner with some of the staff in the bureaus when it's not Commissioner Mapp's bureau. Then you start to be stepping on other people's toes a little bit, and it, it could be, you know, for, seen in a, in, an, in a way that is not... Um, well, <laughs> not not very friendly, um, just because of politics. When in actuality, you know, people like me, I'm a little bit too altruistic. I want to do the right thing, so I, I tried to focus more on what was within the climate plan that um, I could affect change with with our own bureaus, and what partnerships that I could make with other bureaus that were aligned. And uh, there were plenty of possibilities with uh, PBOT, Portland Bureau of Transportation, because of all the work that uh, BES, Bureau of Environmental Services, does regarding uh, stormwater management and uh, infrastructure and green streets and uh, all the different components where the the right of way, the the, the streets that the city you know owns and, and maintains, um, are all all layered on top of each other. So I was trying to explore that space since uh, it was difficult to form a coalition with the other offices uh, to work work on it more holistically. Yeah, for people that don't know, Portland has this really antiquated form of government where. We don't have uh, like a city manager or someone overseeing everything. Even the mayor is assigned certain bureaus. And the mayor also assigns bureaus to the four other commissioners. So one of the big critiques of our system is that these silos get put up because commissioners focus on what's on their what's in their portfolio. And they really don't care about the other stuff because they're not going to be judged by it. They're not going to be held account for it as much. So something like climate change seems like a perfect example of an issue where you know, our form of government really falls down, right? So, so okay, so you you get into office, you, you're starting to, to try to put pieces together. Uh, obviously, climate is a big focus of yours, not just personally, but you're seeing increasing reasons like out in the world on your way to work every day that climate needs to be like front and center. And you're, you're putting things together, trying to build alliances and move things forward. But what was some of your initial impressions about about how about the sway or lack thereof that climate change would have as an issue in, in city hall did, I mean, what are, what were some did you have some initial red flags that ooh this is going to be difficult to really make some progress on or or the other way did you were you initially when you first came in pretty excited that you could make a lot of ground what was it like those first first few months uh, well, it was extremely challenging. Like I said, I had wonderful conversations with staff at, at BPS about the plan and places where we could work together, but the lack of uh, other interest from the other commission offices to to work on this issue with me uh, outside of uh, the mayor's office was was really 
um, disheartening because I know it's a huge issue. I know it scares people. Um, it scares me, uh, but we have to we have to tackle it. We have to work on it. And when there isn't a willingness to to back up the actions with the the words and the rhetoric of the climate emergency and all the things that we're doing to be able to try and focus on the issue, uh, it's 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 really disappointing to me. I'm curious if you think the difficulty and challenge of it was like how much of it was because of this quirky form of government and it was just like hard to, to weave through staff versus uh, really just having people in city hall, both staff and, and leadership, just really not want to make it a big issue. Yeah, there's there's so much to unpack there because, as you mentioned before about how the commission form of government works, the mayor assigns bureaus not necessarily based on interest, but also sometimes based on politics. And I can't say I blame him, uh, but that doesn't mean that's what's best for all of us in the city. So in certain cases, the commissioners that were assigned bureaus that were of key importance, especially regarding climate initiatives, didn't necessarily have an interest on working on those climate issues. Or in the case of Commissioner Hardesty, she had no interest in transportation, but was assigned transportation. And it's been a, it's a challenge to be able to say, let's talk about climate and transportation when there's not really an interest in transportation. So those types of uh, challenges for me were extremely difficult to, to navigate because within the system that as it exists, this is the path forward that I need to use. But if the path isn't paved with uh, the proper bricks uh, and it's full of potholes, uh, then I'm doomed before I start because I don't have a spare tire. And and I'm I'm liking the transportation analogy because I recall you at some point expressing that you had really hoped that Commissioner Maps would be given uh, the Transportation Bureau, uh, but that was not... Uh, that was not meant to be, apparently. So not that, in the cards. Yeah, so that, that, that complicated your, your efforts in sort of moving the climate change uh, ball down the field. So the way I see this playing out is that you had, you'd sort of gotten you know, more frustrated about some of these challenges and moving climate change along. Um, and at some point, you decided to speak out about it. And made a decision. I think um, I don't know when you personally made the decision, but I know because I've seen the city council meeting uh, where you showed up during the public comment period as a as an advisor to a commissioner who was sitting there listening to you on the other end, uh, and and expressed uh, quite a uh, a passionate uh, plea about the lack of progress on climate change at City Hall. And uh, I'll play the clip in a second, but. Uh, I remember it just being like sort of this rapid fire. Each each commissioner had some had a price to pay in your eyes in terms of not doing enough, and he went down each one and expressed it. So, did I leave anything out before we get to that? Well, I met with uh, a group. I believe they were formed by either a city council uh, resolution or some sort of uh, official capacity. Uh, they're they're a youth climate advisory group. Oh, and this was during, while you were in MAP's office? Yes, I met with them several times, and it was interesting because in some ways they were, they were my conscience. Because the first time I met with them, and these are young children uh, that are in some cases even as young as elementary school or in other cases recently uh, just went off to college after completing, you know, their schooling here in Portland, and they were making that 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 moral high ground uh, argument 
that because they're, they're not involved in our economy, they're not involved in our government or anything like that, they're not adults, they think about things pretty pure and simple. You know, it's quite binary. It's like, this is obvious. This is the right thing to do. Uh, and in some cases, that, that childlike innocence is something that we as adults often uh, don't give enough credit to because it, it is that, that moral high ground. They don't have anything complicating their decisions or their thoughts when they're maturely considering these huge existential threats that are going to really govern how their future is is going to play out for them. And the first time I met with them, uh, I caught myself giving them, uh, well, more political answers than, than I really uh, probably would have liked. And I was trying to explain to them, uh, within the current system, we can only move and push the levers and knobs to a certain degree to affect change. And as someone who's worked in government their whole career, I know, especially in American government, that's the only way to really make incremental progress outside of, um, you know, force majeure, right? The COVID, something like that, that forces us to change. Uh, when left to our own devices, we, we don't change things quickly. Um, humans don't like change and society has momentum. And they, they called me out on it, and um, I felt pretty crummy afterward. And I met with them again, and I said, you're right. I've had time to think about it. You're right. Wow. So, so a few months into your tenure at Commissioner Maps office, you, you this climate warrior person who's, who's pegged this as your number one concern, the thing you want to work on the most— you sat down in a meeting with uh, a group of youth climate activists, and that's how they responded. They sort of responded by pointing out how you become part of the system that was inhibiting change. Mm, yeah, and and that was that was a hard thing for me to accept. But at the same time, if I can look myself in the mirror and say, "What what am I doing?" Um, I'm extremely grateful that I had those experiences because it made me look and say, "My goodness, you know." Who am I and what am I actually trying to do here? And I knew that the system wasn't perfect, but I definitely had convinced myself that once I was on the inside, I would be able to make uh, an effect change. But in our current form of government, that's nearly impossible. So was that, some, was that sort of a defining moment in your thinking in terms of your ability to continue to work in that building? It, it really was. Uh, because I, I had known by, the, I believe this was May, I think, when I had this conversation, May of 2020. So you'd only one. been there for six, seven months. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and this conversation really was a catalyst for me because I said, you know, to myself, if I haven't been able to at least get somewhere at this point, that I have a roadmap, a plan, I have a coalition, um, what, am I, what are my options? How else am I going to do it? And I realized at that point that it was not going to be likely that I was going to form the kind of coalition that I had hoped for, and that my effect would be limited in scope only to the Water Bureau and BES. Uh, the Water Bureau already has a very great climate program. They actually have their own full-time climate program manager who is a wonderful person and is doing great things for the resiliency of the Bull Run watershed and the system. So... For me to be able to break ground in areas that really needed attention and care and feeding, uh, I realized in my position I wasn't able to do it, and I definitely wasn't going to be able to do it by giving political answers. We don't have the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking of time, I'll have to put on my—I um, mean, I've never worked in political office or, or government, but 
given the time I've spent around it now, that's doesn't seem like a long time to make that, uh, you know, make that decision that you made in terms of how long it takes to get things done in Portland. Um, now, now I'm curious, did you ever go to Commissioner Maps and like express, you know, your frustration about how this was going? Did you did you have any interaction with him to sort of say it red flag like, hey Mingus, you know, uh, I, I know that I can tell by the way things are going that I'm not going to be able to achieve the stuff I've set out to do. I mean, to what extent did you communicate with him on this? I did. I did speak to him about it, and um, it was it was not an easy conversation to have. Um, in part because he was, of course, you know, dealing with an awful lot himself as an individual, and it's often easy to forget that even our elected officials are human beings. Um, he had recently had some sort of uh, plumbing catastrophe in his home and uh, was having to move to a, uh, an alternate location and still, you know, do his job. Um, we, he was still trying to to build relationships with some of his seatmates. Uh, and in many cases, those things have to happen first in order to be able to determine, you know, where where you want to spend your political capital as a politician. And you know, obviously, things that he campaigned on, like charter reform, which I think are very important to the city, uh, temporally, maybe take up the most energy that he's able to spend on an issue, not to mention the things happening with uh, police. And and those types of things um, are what he hears from his neighbors and his constituents. And there's only so much time that one person has to be able to devote to an issue. Um, so it was a hard conversation to have, but I, I understand and I respect him. Um, it's just unfortunate that that's where we are. Can you characterize how he responded to you? Well, he's always supported me on these issues, which is one of the reasons why he wanted me to help him on them in the first place. And he wants to be able to find an appropriate role for himself. Um, he certainly is not, um, you know, through his own words, not a climate expert. I was always his go-to guy for it. Um, and he's learned a lot about it just by, you know, having conversations with me and the work that I've done for him over the past couple of years. Uh, and I think that he's a much more well-educated person on this issue than he was, you know, before he became a candidate. So I consider that a win. Uh, but it, it was definitely um, disappointing, I guess, in some ways that it we can't do both. Can't do both um, city charter reform and, you know, advocate for, you know, revolutionizing policing in Portland, but also working on climate initiatives. Uh, and every every person is different and every person has their own limitations. And, and I understand that uh, because I myself have, have pushed my own limitations at times. And when it begins to take a toll on your physical and mental health, you know, you have to pump the brakes. And you decided to pump the brake. You decided that you couldn't work there anymore. You didn't want to work in City Hall anymore. And you sort of mapped out this idea to speak at city council. Uh, I'll, I'll play that clip and then we'll talk about it on the other side. So here's Matt testifying at Portland City Council on June 21st of this year. Uh, I want to speak uh, briefly to you this morning about something you have all committed to work on, which is climate change, adaptation and mitigation. When you all first met earlier this year as a new council to discuss your council priorities for the year, I thought it was a terrific idea. However, during these sessions, not one of you acknowledged that climate change should be one of your priorities for the year, despite the fact that there is literally an emergency declaration on the books in our city as resolved by the city council. Climate change isn't taking a break 
while we deal with the other major issues facing our city right now. Uh, Mayor Wheeler, sir, uh, you approved of an amendment way back when that I suggested during the energy ordinance hearing in 2017, you may remember. Uh, that amendment added the impact statement section on the staff summaries relating to the renewable energy goals that were set by the city council. Uh, yet as city hall staff myself, I saw with my own eyes how little analysis or thought was ever put into that statement box by most city staff. And in the short time I have today, I want to give some examples of how the everyday business brought before this council has not been vetted with a true climate lens. Commissioner Ryan, sir, housing is very important. We all agree there, and you've done great work so far. Uh, but sir, I beg you to help enhance the development of new housing to ensure that it is climate resilient. There is a city charter amendment that prohibits weatherization of housing. It's literally in the city charter, which is ridiculous. And while our current housing crisis is most severe, it will not be long before more climate migrants begin to push into our city and region. That housing crisis will be far worse, and it is much closer than you realize. All you have to do is look at the droughts to the south. Uh, Commissioner Rubio, who's not here, hopefully her staff will relay this. Uh, the healthy climate fee needs to live on. Otherwise, people have no incentive to decarbonize their operations. Taking a page from Multnomah County's book is a good idea by beginning to ban natural gas infrastructure in all public buildings. BPS has good people working on the climate action plan, but they have no influence over the other bureaus to actually meet the goals. Mr. Hardesty, an electric fire truck will not make PFNR's carbon footprint smaller. The truck is made from newly mined metal powered by lithium batteries whose ore was taken from the earth in poor places like Bolivia. Look into refurbishing the existing fleet to run on renewable fuels sourced locally before we spend $850,000 of taxpayer money for each new fire truck. That company is doing something that we call greenwashing. And ask Derek to call me if you want to know more. And also, please, Commissioner, follow up on your promise to close more streets to traffic. We are losing our window to do this as we come out of the pandemic. Commissioner Maps, BES is a renewable CNG program spooling up at Columbia Boulevard. Use this opportunity to look at how we can power more of the city fleet with that fuel, like Commissioner Hardesty's fire trucks. Mayor Wheeler, you were the only person during the fire truck hearing to say we need to be looking at general efficiencies internally as well. You're so right, sir. Use your office to create a climate czar that will lead this effort for the whole city. Partner with your seatmates on this nonpartisan issue. Remain true to the climate emergency declaration. Climate change is an economic issue. Climate change is a health issue. Climate change is an immigration issue. Climate change is an education issue. Climate change is a human rights issue. It is the issue. Thank you. What did it feel like when you got back to your office after after expressing those feelings directly to Mayor Wheeler and, and Commissioner Maps and the other commissioners? I mean, I felt like it was the the final thing that I needed to do. In, in, in while I still sort of had the moment, I guess, and I had that fire in my belly from the conversation with the youth climate advocates. Uh, but I knew that um, just because of my experience in City Hall, that it likely wasn't going to mean anything, but I needed it to get on the record so that um, I felt better to, about myself, that I was being honest about, you know, how I truly felt about it. Um, again, with my, my uh, youth climate conscience um, in the back of my mind, uh, but also at the same time, you know, I realized that if I wanted to work on it, um, it turns out that being inside the walls of City Hall right now is not the place to do it. Um, you know, I've, I've had support of other um, influential leaders in City Hall, like uh, former Mayor Sam Adams. He and I have talked about climate issues for many years uh, before he came back to work for uh, Mayor Wheeler he, when he was working for you know, a climate think tank back in D.C. Uh, he, he did um, some great favors for me and spoke to my class at PCC about climate issues. And, you know, he's something that he's passionate about. So I, I knew I had I had some supporters, but 
like going back to that statement I made at the beginning of the interview, uh, you know, Portland can't quite walk and chew gum at the same time. And, and that's unfortunate for all of us because we can't do all of these things the way we want to, because the capacity isn't set up to be able to do it. And, and that was a, again, a tough thing for me to admit that I, I had worked all these years to basically get to this point where I thought I'd be able to make a difference. And when I realized just how powerless I actually was, uh, it was somewhat depressing, but it didn't mean that I was going to give up. I just had to think about how I would be able to make a difference in my own way, independent of this system. And you knew when you went to council to leave to to give that testimony that you were no longer going to work there. I, when I when I heard that you made that statement, I thought you were going to say, "And I'm out of here," <laughs> and I'm not. And I'm, I'm as of today, I'm going to resign. But you you didn't say that in the testimony. But did you know at that point that you were leaving? And you'd probably I'd assume you'd already told Commissioner Maps. Yes, that's right. Uh, and and I'd already spoken to the commissioner about it, uh, about that I was going to to leave his office, and that I was also planning on giving this testimony. Uh, and he was very supportive. What did you think about how the commissioners responded? Commissioner uh, Commissioner Hardesty said something in response to your testimony. Mayor Wheeler did, but did any of that leave a mark? Or I mean, how did you? How did that make you feel the way they responded to it? Oh, I felt patronized. Yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, obviously Commissioner Maps didn't say anything because he and I had already had the conversation and he didn't need to have it, uh, you know, out there in public. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I felt somewhat insulted by some of the responses. Like, you know, I felt like I was getting patted on the head. Like I didn't know about climate change yet. I am definitely one of the people in the city that knows the most about it. I I co-chaired the Pacific Northwest Regional Climate Change Conference in April, that brings together all of the greatest minds that are working on this initiative in the entire region, including Canada and Alaska. So to have uh, some of the commissioners, you know, metaphorically pat me on the head, said, don't worry, we're working on it. Um, I was I was pretty insulted. And the fact that they don't take their, their job seriously enough on this issue is um, disappointing to me, right? Because we literally have a climate emergency on the books. And when the commissioners got together to determine their council priorities, Somehow, climate change was not one of the council priorities. How is that possible when they literally have a, an emergency declaration on the books, but it's not a priority? It's this cognitive dissonance. It's almost like just by saying we're working on it makes some people feel better. But in actuality, when you try to look at the individual actions, they're not there to match it. Yeah, so... I hear what you're saying, and Hardesty in her response made that sort of statement about, well, it's so important to us that we didn't need to put it down in that instance, and that it's just, it just pervades everything that we do, and everything we do, we do with the climate change lens. I don't know if she used the word lens, but it was that kind of answer, right, which I'm sure as a climate change person and activist like you are, that's got to be really frustrating to hear that, well, the reason we're not talking about it intentionally is because we're just always thinking about it. I mean, does that not, how does that sit with you when you get that kind of response? Or if there's activists out there that get that kind of response, how should it sit with them? Yeah, it's cognitive dissonance, you know, and that's the But thing. do you think it, could that be true? Could, could it be so baked into everything they do that they don't necessarily have to say that it's their top priority all the time? Well, I know it's not true because I obviously looked at the entire climate plan and I went through it with a fine-toothed comb, so I know it's actually not there. Um, in theory, it could be, but it's not. And one of my, my favorite climate scientist uh, colleagues, 
Um, her name is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She's uh, really just a terrific uh, communicator about the issue. Uh, she's recently authored a book called Saving Us that I think is a terrific read. Uh, but she has done some uh, YouTube series with PBS, uh, something called Climate Weirding. Uh, she's done TED Talks. Uh, she's an amazing person to talk about the issue. And one of her key points that she always brings up and says, the most important thing that you can do about climate change is talk about it. You have to talk about it. So to, to make a statement that says that we, we, we already know so much that we're not going to talk about it is antithetical to what I know that we need to do based on the sociology of it. And when I can literally draw an example to the fire bureau and their super secret fire truck that is full of mined lithium that actually probably has a higher carbon footprint rather than retrofitting old fire trucks, like I said in my testimony, it's, it's ridiculous to say that climate has informed everything. Because if it has, you're actively discarding the value added of a climate lens and deliberately going to greenwashing instead, which is the idea that you make it seem like it's quote unquote sustainable and it looks good because it's electric, but you have to look at all of these details. And the fact that they haven't done that is proof positive that it actually is not a component of everything that the city does. So on that note of you know, tangible things we can do. Sometimes we have those opportunities here. I'm really curious what you think about the sort of the climate implications of the city's decision to, you know, repave a good section of Hawthorne Boulevard and then not do a lot to like get a bunch more bike riders on there and not do a lot to constrain driving access on Hawthorne. How, did we make the, the right decision on Hawthorne on, the, on that paving project? No, it was a colossal disaster, in my opinion. I literally was on Hawthorne last night, and I realized how large the travel lanes are now with the new striping, even with the center turn lane. And I, I couldn't. I'm, I'm used to the cramped old Hawthorne that we all know with those narrow lanes that are really sketchy, and going down the travel lane uh, that was felt so wide, I felt my natural American impulse to want to go a little bit faster, and. I caught myself on it and I said, what is going on here? This is, this is terrible. I mean, it was a colossal failure, in my opinion, uh, to, to redo the project the way that it was done, especially when we have bike plans going back 25 years that say we're going to put bike lanes on Hawthorne. And I'm sure you recall that when they came out with their initial sort of analysis, uh, when the city of Portland's Transportation Bureau came out with their analysis saying they weren't going to do bike lanes uh, because of climate impacts, and they rationalize that through transit times or something like that. I mean, did you buy? Do you buy that argument? No, that was a disgrace of planning, because you know that if you control the street, you can do whatever you want with that street. It's going to have implications on other streets, but you know what? You can look at other American cities that have limited traffic on certain places. All you have to do is look at our very own transit mall downtown. Those lanes are for buses and the max. You see anybody else in there? It's like, oh, get out of there. You're not supposed to be in that lane. You could make Hawthorne transit only. Talk about a bus rapid transit that you could have on one of the city's most major streets. Think about the frequent service of all the people just using buses and bicycles to go up and down that amazing piece of Portland. But instead, we, we flip the data and make it seem like 
bike lanes are going to slow down the traffic. It's like, no, no, you own the street. You can choose who gets to use the street. Or you can choose who is the traffic. Exactly. You know, and I have this discussion with people all the time, uh, you know, when they complain about parking, parking, parking is a privilege, not a right. It's a privilege. So given what you know about being inside that building of City Hall and how the sausage gets made, how do you think something like that happened? I mean, here you have this ostensibly really progressive bureau at PBOT, progressive leadership all around, let's say, and yet we made the lanes wider for, for drivers. Uh, we didn't take a, an opportunity to put in bike lanes. Uh, I, I don't necessarily see transit being sped up that much with the configuration that they chose. How, how does something like that happen? Well. In many cases, like I was saying before, when you have commissioners that are not necessarily the most engaged with their own bureaus, then the bureau staff can basically just run it themselves, which is not such a bad thing unless they are doing it for the wrong reasons. And in situations like this, the 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 not to speak too ill of Commissioner Hardesty's office, but the lack of interest in transportation projects from that office uh, was very disappointing. And it was pretty evident that uh, Commissioner Hardesty's policy person uh, was just regurgitating what Peabot gave and said, no, no, use the bike boulevards. Mm. I'm like, like, no, that's that's not what they're there for. That's not the history. That's not why this is here. So then Peabot can just go and have their decision, push it through, and not really necessarily get that oversight that we as the voters have by having elected officials. Right. So, okay, then, then peel it back another layer. And so why... Why does Peabot leadership want that outcome? Peabot, um, Peabot has a lot of problems. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Their budget is a disaster. Um, they have maintenance backlogs. They have limits on the amount of money that they pull in. Um, they have uh, interbureau agreements that are um, highly beneficial to them financially. And ultimately, I think that the bike lane alternative probably would have cost a little bit of extra money that they don't have. And it wasn't a fight worth having to say we need money to put these bike lanes in. And I understand that as an administrator to say that, you know, I've budgeted for paint and now you're asking me to put in curbs. Now you're asking me to put in extra signs. It adds up and I get it. I totally do. Uh, but there's a time when we have to stand up and say, no, this is important to us for these reasons, reasons that we all actually agree on. And when it comes down to just basic accounting, it's unfortunate that those arguments can sometimes just win the day because we're not looking at the whole picture. So for people who want more action on climate change, can you share some, are there some tangible things you can think of that people should be flagging, uh, that, that they should be telling the mayor and commissioners to do? I mean, just because you're not there doesn't mean people can't email Commissioner Maps or, or Commissioner Rubio or whoever and say, we need to be t paying more attention to X, Y, Z. What would those things be? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, and there are many answers to that. There really are. Um, but in all honesty, and something that I told you know the mayor, that I know that he actually agrees with, because he and I have had a conversation about this in the past, that the city really does need a climate leader. Um, but under, again, under the current form of government, you know, individual bureaus answer to the individual commissioners. So it's hard to have a, a sort of a climate czar that actually is able to coordinate these things unilaterally, unless you have sort of a city manager or strong mayor type of city government. So that's a challenge. But I would say that charter reform is a good path to, to be able to make the city more climate resilient because it will set up the framework to make it more effective. 
Um, and frankly, when it comes to big decisions that are made, especially around fossil fuel infrastructure or uh, or the highway expansions and things like that, again, I said society has momentum. We do these things because we already have been doing them. The infrastructure is built in a way that supports and sustains our current form of life. So the more we can actively turn the battleship and say, that's a way of the past. It's not 1960 anymore. We don't need to build more freeways. Let's start thinking about where we can spend that kind of money to make a better difference that is actually going to help us more toward that type of future that we would like to see. And all you have to do is just be inspired by other places. I know that Americans say that they don't want to be like Europe, or they don't want to be like other places around, around the world. But at the same time, you don't have to look to Europe to find great examples of things that we can do right here in our own city. I mean, you can look to places like New Orleans. That's an American city, last time I checked. You can take a look at their pedestrian plazas. You can take a look at their infrastructure and how they allow businesses to go into the streets year-round and safe places for uh, people to walk around. Basically, the idea that you don't have regular automobile traffic, that you only have delivery trucks and you know, emergency vehicles and garbage hauling. Those are the only, only vehicles ever allowed in those streets. We can do those things here. And, and something that I advocated for because of COVID, that was the time to make the change. You know, I said, let's change things now quickly so that when people wake up from the COVID nightmare, that we can have that new life that we start in. We missed that window, I think. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we can't still push for those things now. We know what works. The science is settled. We have to just come to accept that certain ways of life that we have are maybe not the best thing for the climate. And if we want to be able to achieve those goals, to just have a hard look at ourselves. And do what we can within our own communities. And to quote Dr. Heho again, the number one thing you can do is talk about it. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with your family. Talk about it with your elected officials. So it's important for us to be able to have those conversations within our own communities, within our own tribes, whether it's our transportation, whether it's ethnic, whether it's religious, it doesn't matter. We're all humans. We can all talk to each other. And we all have our own credibility within our own circles. The more we talk about it, the more it becomes obvious and urgent that we need to do things about it actively. And once we are able to swing everybody to that point or a majority, then I think what Commissioner Hardy's said will eventually be true and that climate does impact everything we do once we talk about it enough that everybody knows what we need to do. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. I've never seen a city staffer go out like that. So I appreciate not only taking a stand, but also coming and sharing your experience uh, with us. And I, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That was climate change and resiliency consultant, Matt Glazuski. You can find more about his work at tamarackconsultingnw.com. The Bike Portland podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe to our podcast at bikeportland.org podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell. I'm your host, Jonathan Maas. And until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.